Namodasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namodasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namodasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed noble and fully self-enlightened. Noreen has, keeps up her group of uh, Skype, about four or five of them, who uh, discuss uh, the Dharma. And uh, they take a book or they take something. Um, and this was something that came up for them. Uh, she sent it to me because there was a question about something which we will come to later. So Mechi Kyo is a typhoid nun who has been accepted, who we say is recognized as a fully liberated being. And this is one of her statements, and we'll use it to find out how we can get there, even this week. Body, mind and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known. Earth, water, fire and wind. Body, feeling, memory, thought and consciousness. Sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches and emotions. Anger, greed and delusion, all are known. I know them all as they exist in their own natural states. But no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. They arise and cease, they are forever changing. But the presence that knows them never changes for an instant. It is forever unborn and undying. This is the end of suffering. That's pretty clear. <laughs> so, how do we get to this point, I wonder? This end of suffering. <coughs> um, <clears throat> we'll come back to this in a moment because uh, if we want to... Uh, you know, teach people the Dharma, then uh, we've got to be pretty clear ourselves about the basic teenness, the basic position of the Buddha took. And, uh, and to actually be able to feel that you have the internal logic of his teaching, the internal rationality of his teaching, uh, to make that bold statement, you know, there is an end of suffering. I, I don't think there's a single Western psychologist or school that says there's an end to suffering. They've always got... <laughs> Maybe, uh, maybe if they were Christians, they would have thought they would have thought so. Uh, but um, in the sense of there being an end of suffering right here in this very life, I think that's that's quite a bold statement to make. So uh, just to for us to revise, really, just to go through our minds these uh, the four basic uh, truths that the Buddha taught. Um, this truth of dukkha, you see. Uh, remember, dukkha means something hard to bear. That's its sort of translation, hard to bear. Um, he doesn't. He's not only referring to you know the pains and aches of the body and the uh, uh, the emotional upsets, the pressures, and the stress of life. Uh, it always boils down to these three characteristics: that our deep suffering, the deeper level of existential suffering, comes about because we're not actually. Uh, seeing things as they really are. That's his normal statement. 
Now that statement, which is a translation uh, of, uh, uh, of this, uh, of the Pali, uh, isn't actually absolutely correct. The translation is to see and understand how things have come to be. So this is the Buddha. He's, he's interested in process. He's interested in process. So when we today, for instance, when we're uh, just observing our the process of eating, see, it's the whole process that we are trying to engage with, trying to understand. How is it that we create this world, you know, within this within this psychophysical organism, this body and mind, this fathom-length body, as the Buddha puts it? Within this fathom-length body is the world, the creation of the world, etc., etc. And uh, and it's really beginning to understand that um, we are limited by the body as to what we can experience anyway and then whatever information the body gives us is always taken inward and uh, fixed into our concepts about things and these concepts about things are built up from past perceptions so very simply today we had uh, chili beans you see well we've probably made our own chili beans and had chili beans elsewhere so as soon as we tasted these chili beans we knew whether they were the real chili beans or not because, because either they're not they're not the proper chili beans, or or they are the proper chili beans, or they they're almost the proper chili beans. So is it this judgment, this judging mind, and uh, and that's something else. Uh, remember, judging there's a distinction between being judging and judgmental. But putting that aside, uh, this whole process of of uh, creating the world within ourselves, having this memory of uh, past events, uh, reliving really the world through our particular memory patterns. I mean, that's the sankharas, that's our habits. See? So uh, when the Buddha talks about this dukkha, he's, he's sort of digging deep at the level of our perception, how we perceive things. And one of them is that we perceive continuity. And we actually really do believe that, you know, uh, the person... Me, who got up this morning, well, I'm pretty well the same person now. And I, did, I don't see, I don't experience myself arising and passing away. I experience myself as absolutely constant <laughs> within a massive change. It's me always that's doing stuff. And it's uh, getting down to that anicca, getting down to this a real deep level of impermanence is to see that the actual self is arising and passing away. The sense of me arises with every experience I'm having, momentary experience I'm having. So uh, this, this again uh, digs even deeper to the point of identity. See? Now here in this statement, you see, she says, uh, I am unable to detect even for an instant when they have any power over my heart. See, to have power is, is to have control, is, is the self. Whenever you say, you know, uh, this is me, and then you define it. If you say "I am" and you put and you put uh, something at the end of that sentence, you know, "I am uh, angry," "I am happy," "I'm uh, an engineer," "I am a nurse," whatever you say after that, uh, you're locked into that definition, even if only for that moment, for that time. And that's how we define ourselves. When that definition disappears, then of course, at times, it can send us into a process of of not knowing who we are. So you get this crisis, an identity crisis. I remember that I used to have a Tai Chi teacher, he was a lovely man. 
and um, uh, I, I stopped going and I met him years on, uh, well not that far on, maybe two or three years on, and he was half the man I remember him and I, I, said, uh, I said, what's happened? I thought he'd had an illness. He said, no, he said he just lost his job. So with his job, lost his death. It wasn't only the pain of loss of the income, you know, which we found out, but the whole self-definition of who he was and what his position was in the world. It was just taken taken away from him. And he had the, the usual uh, depression and, and all that sort of stuff that comes with that loss of identity. And of course, the final loss of identity is when, is when you know, they, they lay us out in the morgue. I mean, that's when we know we've lost our identity. <laughs> so... Uh, this, this, uh, the, the way the Buddha is sort of digs really deep, and it's a place, of course, that uh, most therapists don't want to go. It's a bit, it's a bit frightening to get down to that level, but that's where we we want to get to. We want to get down to this business of who am I? See, before I describe myself, before there's there's something coming after the am, I am whatever. And uh, it's because, remember, because of this deep delusion as to who I am meaning this body, this heart, this mind, this, this um, person, see this person, uh, which exists, by the way. The person exists in the sense that it's momentary. It's a momentary uh, total conception of me. There are experiences in meditation where you can step out of the self. It's a bit strange, but you can step out of it and you see, oh, there's a the self. <laughs> and... And that self, but it, it's not permanent. That's the problem. Now, because of this identity of uh, this 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 uh, identity of, of being this person, then you remember that I have this relationship with the world now. And when we ask ourselves, "How do I want to be?" You know, "How do I want to be?" What do I want to? Be? What do I want to be? I think I think we come to this word "happy." I just want to be happy, for heaven's sake. You know, I don't. Want to <laughs> Everybody will define their happiness in their own way, but that, that I want to be happy is, is just, that's all I want to be. I just want to be happy. And uh, because of this delusion, though, remember we seek the happiness in, in, in just these wrong places. And, and that's where we form attachments. And attachments are simply our psychological dependency on something. And then we find we don't have control over it. And so, and so the whole gamut of human misery starts, you know, the frustration, grief, etc. And of course, once you've, once you've gained something, you've got to protect it one way or the other, you know, whether it's against some nasty person or a government, you've got to, <laughs> you've got to protect what you have. And so there's that aversion and the fear of loss. So you can see uh, from this deep delusion that arises a more tangible dukkha, I mean, if you were to say to somebody, are you suffering? They'd probably point to these sorts of things. You know, like I'm depressed, uh, my job's not going well, my relationship's collapsing, all that sort of stuff. So they point to something actually concrete and something they can, they can actually feel and, and, uh, and explain. But at a deeper level, uh, we have this, this inexplicable uh, sense of identity, you see. Right? And, and you can see from her statement that something, something's missing there, isn't it? Because no matter what's happening to her at any level, it doesn't have any power over her heart. In other words, she cannot be grasped by it. She cannot be lost in it, deluded by it. See? 
So that's that's the that's where the Buddha puts his you know um, should we say stakes out his cause. You know this, this is there is dukkha, <laughs> and there's no way there can't be dukkha. That's the point. There's no way you know for us with the idea of a self there can be anything but dukkha in the end. Some sort you know, and even when we are totally happy. Uh, when things are going perfectly right and, and the world is is full of gold and shining, uh, there is always that awful, under, you know, that feeling underneath that things are passing, you know, that you don't have control over it. So nothing can give us absolute, total satisfaction. Uh, <clears throat> um, again, it's usually expressed in, in the negative. The presence that knows them never changes for an instant. See? This is the end of suffering. So, in terms of how we would normally define our happiness, normally define a state of a-dukkha, not suffering, uh, we would normally define it in a very positive way, such as, you know, feeling happy, going on holiday, uh, having a good job, all that sort of stuff. We would actually define it as some sort of existing, uh, existing experience. But this, but, this, but this can't be that, can it? Because she's, she's opted out of all experiences. This is a presence that knows, never changes for an instant, is forever unborn and undying. In other words, you're not part of the process of the phenomenal world that we're experiencing, which is arising and passing away. Yeah? Complete distinct from it. So this is the end of suffering. So uh, our question is then, what is the, the next position that the Buddha takes is, you know, what's the cause of it? Now, he doesn't, having stated these three delusions of anicca, dukkha, and atta, he doesn't, he doesn't drive at the cause. This is an important point. He doesn't drive at the cause of being, uh, the, the problem is identity. That's not where he's positioning us because that's, that's, that would be impossible to work with directly. Um, he's pointing to, that, to how this delusion and this wrong identity manifests. And it manifests in our desires. So then he gives us this uh, dependent origination, which is in the second noble truth. He tries to point out to us how, where, this, where the weak link is in this whole process of creating suffering for ourselves. And you'll notice that at the base you've got this sense of ignorance. Now remember that ignorance is not culpable. It's not as though we should have known better. It's a state of not knowing. And just like we don't know something... Uh, we then presume to know or we think we know or we make a guess or we, we take a leap and it, it's usually into some sort of uh, pit. See? So, <laughs> so it's, it's accepting that at the base of our... Uh, at, at, at the, the fundamental part of us is a state of not knowing. And this, remember, translates into the heart as a sense of innocence. So from a moral uh, heart point of view, you know, compassion, joy and peace... We start from a point of innocence, see? which means not doing harm. You know, that's the, the, it's the Latin, no harm. So there's no harm and not knowing are, are combined to form what she's referring to here as, um, as body-mind, mind especially. Um, the, I don't know what words she's referring to in the Pali. The, um, the Buddha uses words... Uh, contextually, so that sometimes <coughs> they seem to contradict each other. If you're actually going just for a word, so take take the word 
uh, chitta. Chitta became, uh, could be translated in, in our language as uh, the combination of, the, of, of mind and heart. The old word soul as opposed to spirit. Uh, psyche. Um, we split those in our Enlightenment period, so, you know, in the great 18th century Enlightenment, so that we think of ourselves as rational beings and or feeling beings, you know. So you get people say, I think, and then others say, I feel. See? <laughs> so this split is, is something that, that we have, which has, of course, had its uh, brighter side. It's brought about science and technology and all that. Uh, but in, 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 uh, in the Buddha's understanding, that would all be just one faculty, and that's known as citta. See? And yet, in his victory verse, the one that we chant in the morning, he says he's, he's achieved the asankatan citta. So he's achieved something which is not conditioned. That obviously can't be the body, the, the mind-heart um, matrix. See? So we have to be careful about, I don't know what words uh, she's referring to here. So, um, we have this dependent origination, you see, and we need to be clear about that. We need to be clear as to why the Buddha taught it. So, he's teaching us how we create the world, and it's, it's, it's the creation in time, because these, these uh, links uh, don't always come at the same time. The first, the first few are always there at any given time. Uh, so, there's always that not knowing beneath everything we do, a sense of uh, lack of, which, which, which expresses itself as a lack of wisdom. And because of that, we've created these delusions, these sankara, see? And they're, they're running underneath every moment as a, as a potential, like a program in a computer. And then you have a moment of action, a moment that drops into uh, this flow, you might say, uh, of course, they're momentary, arising and passing away, and all that. But even so, you've got this 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 drop into the moment, and that's that's when you get the body, mind, and consciousness. And he separates them. You see, the body and mind are one uh, are one uh, uh, matrix. The body and the mind working off each other. So that's what we do when we're eating. We're seeing that there's the body taste, the heart responds with a bit of joy, uh, and so on. So those, that matrix is, uh, is always happening and there's the consciousness of it. So consciousness here, you have to be careful, uh, it's a discriminative consciousness that is included in there, shall we say, a certain uh, knowing, a certain habitual way of discriminating things. Um, just even at a very simple perceptual level. Um, you know that uh, when um, Cook arrived in Australia, uh, the Aborigines didn't see the ships because they didn't have a context in which to see them. It's the same with me. When I was in Sri Lanka, I heard this barking. For some reason, I hadn't associated that sort of noise, barking, with monkeys. And when they told me it was monkeys and they were up there, for the life of me, I couldn't see them. And they, they were just amazed that I couldn't see these monkeys. Uh, and then suddenly I saw them, you know, because I had a picture of a monkey in my eyes. <laughs> Of course, surrounded by blooming monkeys. No, I didn't see this. It. It's astonishing, really. So, uh, that whole process has to be, shall we say, put onto a screen. And that's your vijnana. But it also includes all, all the knowledge and the intelligence, uh, all the knowledge and the understanding that we have is on that screen. See? Now, 
Once that's happened, remember, uh, so you've got the body, you've got the, the splitting up of that into the five, uh, into the six ayatana. Now, uh, ayatana are spheres. And what all the Buddha is saying is that each sphere is distinct and discreet. So you can't hear through your eyes and you can't, you can't uh, see through your ears. It's just one of those things. I know there's this uh, thing about synesthesia, but I think that's just in the mind. It, that's the mind itself working on it. Inside, inside, that's the sixth sense, right? The fact is that you're never going to hear through your eyes, whether you like it or not. <laughs> so it's sort of uh, recognising that uh, we experience the world through very different avenues, which we have to collect onto this screen. Um, so even here, uh, you can hear me, you can see me, uh, you can f feel the atmosphere of this room, all of that is happening in little blits and blobs, but somehow it's held on this screen. And that's, the, that's what the vijnana is referring to. Now, when, uh, when that's held there, uh, we, f we have our moment-to-moment moment -moment contacts. So there has to be those three things there, an object, uh, the sense base, and, and, uh, and, and that consciousness, that, that, that holding on a screen for us. Now, it's the next point which turns this world into likeable or unlikable. And that's the Vedana. And once we've, once we've experienced something like that, remember, there's always a reaction to it. Of always wanting to make the world uh, pleasant for myself and, uh, and, get a, and get rid of anything that's unpleasant. And it's at that point that we see the escape. Right? The escape is between seeing, experiencing things as pleasant and unpleasant and and seeing how we're reacting to it, which is then creating a relationship to it, right? Now, if we see that, we also we'd also uh, become aware that actually, even at this point, there's no suffering. See, have you grasped that in your meditation? Have you seen that when you're aware of, say, pain in the knee, and you're aware of aversion to the pain, not wanting it, if those two become clear objects in your mind, you're not actually suffering. Even at that point, you're not actually suffering. It's only at the next point when, uh, as it were, you dive into, you lose yourself in that reaction and you become, I don't want. So the point of real suffering is always at the point of identity. Now, the question is, who's suffering? It's the Buddha who's suffering. The Buddha's suffering, and that's why he wants to get out of suffering. <laughs> See, there's no... There's no, there's no suffering as such in the body and mind. All there is, is what is pleasant and unpleasant. The point of suffering is when this very thing, you see, this very thing, uh, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have power over my heart. Right? This knowing. As soon as this heart or this knowing falls into that wrong identity, is that which is suffering. It's the Buddha's suffering and the Buddha wants to get out of suffering. So, uh, grasping that, see, grasping that what's happening at the point of identity is that our, our, uh, this Buddha within us is actually losing itself through the delusion, that initial delusion of believing that true happiness is to be found in the sensual world. Sensual here means, you know, the whole, the whole phenomenal world, the mind, the, the mind, the world that's being created by the mind <coughs> out of quite minimal data, I believe. So then, of course, 
having uh, said that this is the cause, um, uh, he then tells us how to do it, just missing that third step uh, about Nibbana, uh, the end of suffering. He then tells us how we're actually going to achieve this. And you'll notice that it's completely systemic, right? It's, it, the fact that just because we understand something or see something doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to become systemic. So <clears throat> just seeing, for instance, how desire arises when we're eating, and we know that there's an overlay of greed, there's an overlay of attachment to the food, <coughs> an overlay of wanting to seek happiness there. Uh, just the seeing of that, clearly, 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 uh, even though we see it absolutely clear, it's, it's clearly not enough, because we keep being greedy. <laughs> so, so there's something else <laughs> that's, that's a problem here. And, and then when we look down into the line, we find attitude. Now, attitude refers to our, uh, these, these conditionings within us, what our attitude is. And when we look at one of them, this selfishness, which manifests as, as, as anything we do for our own good, uh, you know, for our own benefit, um, uh, uh, driven by the idea that this is happiness. See, that's always the internal delusion there. When we see uh, that, in fact, it has to be hit at an attitudinal level. Now, how do you, how do you change at an attitudinal level? It's by seeing these intentions. By seeing these intentions. And that's why this is such a strong teaching within the Mahasi's tradition, the Saido, uh, Mahasi Saido's tradition. To see an intention is to see the manifestation, the initial manifestation of a delusion, an initial manifestation of a habit that we've created which is unwholesome for us. So as soon as I see this uh, you know, desire for scones, for instance, arise tomorrow, See, as soon as that desire hits me, and I know, I say, oh, that's the old greed. I'm, I'm hoping it's as good as last. So, <laughs> so it's actually catching that moment. Now, if we have this mindfulness, this awareness, this alertness to actually be with that, then we'll allow it to exhaust itself. And every time we do that, we're drawing energy from that old habit. See, so that this, this, this compact energy that we've got on, you know, uh, now directed just towards this object that we call a scone, is now being drawn out, you see. So tomorrow, when the scone is there, you'll be able to say, I'm going to renounce the scone, you see, <laughs> and, and, and sit with the pain of renunciation, knowing that this pain is a healing pain because it's drawing the poison out of the system, you see. When all that's gone and you feel perfectly equanimous, then of course you can have your scone. But not without... You know, not without uh, clearly seeing any arising of greed for the scone uh, after that. So, uh, the now, and when, on the opposite, of course, is that when the intention is seen as wholesome, then we empower it. And in this sense, the heart's growing. So, when we look at right attitude, it's normally put in those three ways, isn't it? Selfishness to generosity, hatred to love, uh, Cruelty to compassion, cruelty to compassion. So those are your three. Now you'll notice that that they there's no in between state. You're either greedy or you're not greedy. There's not there's not there's not an in between state there. So I, I've tended these days to use the word sublimate rather than transform because it immediately changes. So as soon as you let out this uh, uh, greedy feeling and you and you just let it burn itself out, 
That, that energy is not lost. It's there as potential and it'll be used for the right intention. And in this way, the growth toward light, see, from darkness to light, as the Buddha says, uh, becomes a natural process through this process of renunciation. And that's what we mean by renunciation, remember. It's not, it's not, we're not trying to beat ourselves up. We're just trying to really feel those initial intentions and, and to stay steady amongst them and wait for it to just to die away. See? And then, of course, uh, the, the intention there, of course, does, it doesn't finish there, does it? Because then it has to translate into the way we speak, to what we do, and into our livelihood. So, in other words... It has to manifest. It has to manifest. Now, uh, remember that an intention, uh, unless it's empowered, hasn't done anything. It's not what we call a comma, an act. So, just my, uh, just my feeling greedy is, shall we say, an energy coming out of a past habit, but it's not been, it's not been potentialized. Right? Nothing's happened. Um, have, uh, have, you, have you heard... Have you heard about the the rule about stealing for monks? Have I explained that to you? What, what all the different levels of stealing that a monk can get up to when he's really bad? <laughs> uh, if I uh, have some of you heard it, or is it no? Yeah, I think you have. Yeah, I can't remember. No, okay. Well, it's just pointing out what it points out is very clearly the distinction between these processes. So, for instance, if I pass. Uh, if I pass, I don't know, this, this, um, this gong and I, I sort of like it, I can feel the draw to it of wanting it. And if I just let that go, you see, then it'll disappear. But if I don't and, I, and my mind sort of works on it, then I might get a really greed for it. And at some point, passing it again, my hand might stretch out to it, you see. Now, and then I pull it back, think, what are you doing, you fool? You know? and then, but I've already committed what's known as a dukkata. This is a, this is a small offence. See, uh, against the Vinaya. And, 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 if, and if I'm lazy-minded and I don't watch my thoughts and next time I, I really sort of go for it and I think, yeah, I do want it, and I put my finger on it, and that's, that's a garo, that's, that's a very heavy um, uh, offence. See? Uh, however, if I then, under a point of weakness, because I'm so entranced by this, by this gong... <laughs> I reach out and I move it a nano centimeter, and then pull my hand back. You see, and go. I said, I've done it. That's that's the theft. It's completed. See, I can't. I lose my robes. There's no way you can get beyond that. Even if, and I don't even get the gong. I left it there. It's absolutely useless. But the act was done. You see, so you can see, <laughs> you can see through these this 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 lovely way that the veneer splits up the way that we create a bad act. Um, you know, by, by, by not seeing that initial intention. So, in the same way, of course, we sometimes have initial good intentions, but we don't act upon them, you see. But it's actually catching a good intention and then making that effort. So, um, that translates. So, in other words, an attitude is potential, and it manifests its potential in an intention. And the intention still remains potential until it's intentioned. An intention has to be intentioned. It's this peculiar language we've got. Uh, and, then, and, then you, and then you commit an act. And that act can be of a, an internal thought. So you, you're creating a, a thought which is uh, malevolent. 
it can be an act of speech, it can be an act of uh, something that we've done, and it, and it can be and it's our livelihood. And when you think of livelihood, you think, well, why would he put that in? Because it comes under action, really. You know, that's what we do. Uh, but he's pointing out that you know our uh, what we what we do for the best part of our lives, in a sense, our our work in society, it's where we put our, our tremendous amount of our energy, is conditioning us. You know, so if you know if if you work in a pub, that's that's one place. You know, and if you work in a nursery, that's another place. As an effect. You know, and it's not as though these places are essentially pubs are essentially evil, but it'd be difficult not to, to have an occasional drink. Right? So, um, if if you look back on on your life and the work you've done, and just you know just just consider the effect it had on you as a as a personality, as a as a as a, um, as a character forming thing. And then, of course, uh, once that. Uh, Subsisting all that is is this mindfulness, you know, right concentration, right mindfulness, and right effort, um, and that's of course always to do with a certain level of awareness, a certain you know being here, and that's of course very difficult for us because we're constantly forgetting to do that, and so this idea of stopping as often as we can during the day and just re-establishing that sense of presence. Um, you see, look what she says. You see. Um, but the presence that knows, the presence that knows. And we have to re-establish that every moment, even though the presence that knows may still be a little off, <laughs> maybe still have a chink in the eye, it's still a presence that knows. And it's constantly going back to that presence that knows, that is, is the reminder. And then once we're in that presence that knows, to make sure that the intention that we're going to, we're going to actually act out and and... Uh, and go into and and absorb into. So this is the point. Absorb into is going to help us to maintain that presence. Now, uh, remember that in when we're in action. Um, well, no. Let's go back to the sitting meditation. In the sitting meditation, we're always trying to get this presence that knows to be the presence that knows. Um, to find that place within us of the observer, that that uh, uh, observation post, where we we can see things that are happening within this body, heart, and mind. Now, when we're in that position, uh, you know, to to really recognise it as something transcendent, it's not it's no longer caught up in what's happening. So there may be pain in the knee, and there may be a reaction to it of aversion, but. There's no, there's no doing. There's just that happening. See, within what? Within that presence. Within that awareness. See, when you hear a bird or a song of a bird, there is the sound of the, uh, of the eardrum, and you can clearly see it. It's there in the ear, and then you can feel that your heart might lift, unless it's uh, one of these raucous crows. But <laughs> if it's a nice little bird, uh, then your heart lifts, and you can see that. You see, but you're not. You don't get lost in it, you're observing it, you see. Now, even though uh, we want to get to that position and stabilise it in our meditation, remember that's only a first position in terms of, uh, of what we want to do. The second position is to become so curious about what's happening within this body, heart, mind, that we centre in on something. 
And as we do that, we absorb into it. Now because we've absorbed into that, uh, whatever's happening within us, uh, some emotional state, some feeling, um, we've gone into it with the right intention to understand the Dharma. When we come out of that and we're back to being the observer and whatnot, uh, we've actually developed that sense of curiosity. And with it we've developed an understanding because we've gone into the subject in a, in a more intimate way. Now, in, in the opposite side, when we, when we absorb into something with, with a bad intention, you come out the other side with that being developed. So that's why this process of right awareness is, is uh, paramount in our practice. Uh, to be aware, to keep bringing ourselves back into the present moment is the practice. That's all it is. You can, you can file it down, you can put all the, the Buddha's teachings in terms of the practice into that one word, sati, samasati. See? So, <clears throat> how, can we, how can we now uh, understand what she's saying here? So the body, mind and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Now, I'm presuming that what she means by the essence is this very sense of presence. Because all there is is body and mind and Essence. I mean, uh, remember this is translating the Thai, so we don't, it's all second hand, second hand, yeah. Absolutely everything is known, see. So within that field of awareness, nothing is blocked out, nothing is, uh, nothing is separated out or, or put to one side or given special, um, a special attention or whatever. It's just, it's just the stuff that arises through this psychophysical organism. So, earth, water, fire, and, and wind. So, these are the four elements, you see. Remember, those four elements uh, don't exist out there. I mean, I know it's put as earth, water, fire, and, and wind. What they're telling us is how the mind contacts matter. See? The mind contacts matter by way of, these, uh, by way of this sensibility to heat, um, to uh, elasticity, to pressure, and to movement. And then there's the body feeling, the body, the feeling, memory, thought and consciousness. So you remember that you can actually, uh, when you're observing something, you're observing something on that screen of consciousness. So it's there, there's nothing behind it, See, there's nothing behind it, you can't get behind it, you can't get through it, it's, that's it, that's the world we're living in, whatever we're conscious of. Now here's a funny statement, this is why Noreen uh, emailed me. Anger, greed and delusion are all known. Now, here I'm presuming that she's actually meaning that she sees anger, greed and delusion in other people. <laughs> and that, that it's not affecting her, it's not, it's not coming into her. I'm presuming that, uh, that she hasn't got that within her. Because it, it wouldn't make sense for her to have that within her as such. Because she's undercut the whole process by destroying that wrong identity from which it all arises. Um, but I did suggest to Noreen something else. Um, you'll know that there are these four levels of, uh, of, of sanctity, of, of spiritual attainment, the stream enterer, and then the once-returner, the non-returner, and the arahat. <clears throat> now, normally speaking, what, what, what it's said in the... What it's, 
the way it's normally understood, and the way the, no, the, the commentaries would normally put it, is that there's a magga and a pala, the path and the fruit. And it's normally said that when a person becomes a sotapanna, there is a moment, that initial moment is the path. And then all the other moments of their lives as a sotapanna is the fruit of that insight. See? Now, uh, and that's the same for them all. But uh, there's definitely... Uh, evidence in the scriptures to say that actually these are two paths and this makes great sense to me personally the first one is to do with the right understanding you see where a person sees quite clearly one of these three characteristics and the seeing of these characteristics now has to be uh, um, become systemic it has to run through right attitude, right speech, right action, right livelihood. It has to manifest outwards that way. And until it's done that totally, we can't talk about the fruit of it. So one of the arguments for that is the, is the experience the Buddha himself had, where it's said in the scriptures, he, he has this moment of enlightenment, but then Mara chases him, remember, for seven years uh, with his three daughters, greed, hatred, and, uh, sorry, sensual pleasure, uh, eroticism, and, and boredom, see? So, now, we, we, we can see that that's where his, his problems lay. <laughs> it wasn't so much in power. If you remember, Jesus uh, was, was tempted by power. You know, he's saying to the top of the mountain about the devil, you know, you can, you can have all this, you see. So there's always power, riches, and, and, um, and sensuality. So that was where, you might say, he'd been stuck, you might say. So, uh, seven years, you know, Mara finally gives up on it, you know, says he sees me, Mara sees me. But the, it hadn't, the, the purity had not become systemic, see, there's a suggestion there, whether it was seven years or not, who knows, but there's, a, there's an understanding there that it took time for this huge insight, for this new liberation to, to find its way through all his habits and, all, and, and, and because his habits were still there, he would have seen them as unwholesome. See? So it may be that that's also what she's referring to. And she's not yet reached the, um, the, the fruit of her insight. Um, but I prefer to see it the other way. That, <laughs> that she has actually, and that she's quite aware when somebody's being greedy, deluded, she's not fooled by it. But what a wonderful thing to be able to say. I'm unable to detect even an instant when they have power. Any power over my heart. Eh? I want, I want to be able to say that. <laughs> ah, yes, they arise and cease. They are forever changing. But the presence that knows them never changes for an instant. Right? Never changes for an instant. And we can, we can get a hint of that in ourselves because when you've finally, you know, when you've isolated the sense of the observer very clearly in yourself, and, and then you reflect at the end of your sitting or something, like, what was it like to be there? What's inside the observer? What's it made of? See? And that's where we're getting a hint that where the Buddha says, those who are mindful in this way are in the presence of Nibbana. So he's not, he's not actually saying that we can't get a taste for it, we can't get a a feel for it. And it's important because the more we get that feel for it, the silence of it, the, um, the lack of 
the lack of excitement. You know, our happiness is always gauged by how happy we are emotionally, how excited we are, what the future has to offer us. And yet here, there's a uh, there's a pointing to some sort of stasis, some sort of peacefulness that never changes. Well, you know, an internal an internal position of, of silence. You know, and uh, when we when we begin to sense that, it's also begin to realise that it's not part of this process of arising and passing away. It is forever there, you see. Now, that's very difficult for us to, to grasp because for us, there is time. We can't imagine something not being in time, not being caught up in some sort of changing process. Yeah? But she's pointing to that. It's forever unborn and undying. It's not part of this process of... Of, um, of the phenomenal world and then finally just this is the end of suffering uh, may it be that uh, May Chi Kyo has inspired us <coughs> driven us to greater efforts may we all be fully realized and free from all suffering sooner rather than later Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.